Well, this morning we are finishing up our study of this wonderful book of Ruth, and I hope that you have enjoyed this study as much as I've had. It's been a real encouragement to my heart to spend so much time in this wonderful book, be preparing each week to teach through it, and and I hope it, I know it's ministered to my heart, and I hope it's ministered to yours as well. So would you, if you would, take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Ruth, and, and go to chapter 1 of the book of Ruth. <clears throat> and if you don't have a Bible, we want you to be able to follow along with us this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, we want you to be able to have one. So slip up your hand, and uh, we've got some Bibles in the back. So you may need one. All right, everybody's got one. That's good. The blessings of technology, even if you don't have your paper copy, you probably have your, your digital copy there with you. Well, this morning I'm going to do something that I normally don't do in my messages. I'm going to begin this morning not just by reading our text for this morning, but I want to begin this message by reading through the entire book of Ruth. Now, before you freak out and think you're going to be here a week and a half, it is only 85 verses, so there are psalms longer than this book. Um, but I thought that would be a helpful way to, uh, for us to remember what we have seen thus far as we've gone through the book. So, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, follow along as I read. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. 
And when Naomi saw she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Marah. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men have I char- not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother in law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some of the bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to her, 
to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go with these young men, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she crept close to the young men of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, You know, let's not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. 
Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and all that belonged to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gates of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So reads the word of God. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, as we gather here today, we we praise you for the way that you care for your own. We praise you for your sovereign hand so powerfully on display in this story. We praise you for the redemption in this story. That though Naomi and Ruth came back to the land empty-handed, emptiness was not the future that you had for them. Now help us this morning as we wrap up our time in this book. Help us to marvel and to rejoice in the way that you work. And the way that you are a redeeming God who has purposed to bless his own. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now there are a lot of reasons why people love the book of Ruth. But the way that it ends is probably at the top of most people's list. This story, this story that starts out with so much tragedy, so much loss, it concludes with a wonderfully happy ending. Ruth and Boaz are married. There is a child there on Naomi's knee. And through that child would come David, the nation's greatest king. Not a bad way to wrap up the story, is it? And our hearts, let's be honest, they love that kind of ending. We love happy endings, amen? We love happy endings because we are wired to love them. There's something down deep in us that resonates with happy endings. We love it when all the pieces fall into all the right places, when there is a resolution and that resolution is good. And I believe that we can trace that, that deep down desire for happy endings all the way back to the garden, all the way back to the garden. There is in, in us, there is in us a knowledge of the way things are supposed to be. Amen. 
There's a knowledge of the way that things are supposed to be. When Adam and Eve were first created and they dwelt together in the garden, they lived in a world that was the way it was supposed to be. They lived in a world of shalom. That's the the Hebrew word for peace. Uh, But it means more than what we commonly think of when we use the term peace. Shalom means more than simply a ceasefire. It means more than simply a cessation of conflict. Instead, shalom speaks of wholeness and harmony. It describes relationships of of unity and and oneness. Shalom is the way the world should be. And in us, I believe there is a longing for shalom, a longing for the world for which we were created. But we long for it, let's be honest here, we long for it because we realize we don't have it. (laughs) Amen? We realize we don't have it. After Genesis 3 and the fall of man, shalom has been hard to come by. Amen? It's been hard to come by. Adam's sin brought, brought disunity and disharmony and division. And from Adam on, every generation that followed, the division and the disharmony and the disunity has just kept on spreading. Amen? Through, all, through our sin, through your sin and my sin, we've all participated in an attack upon shalom. We've all participated in an attack upon shalom. We've all added to the mess. We don't live in the world for which we were created. We look around and we don't see a lot of happy endings. And that reality, that reality, the reality of, of living in a fallen world can lead, us, can lead us to a very dangerous and unhealthy place. We can find ourselves exactly where Naomi did in chapter one of this story. Remember, she looked around at her world the reality of of living in a fallen world, having lost her husband, right? Having lost her sons, having to move away from her home country. She looked around at the reality of living in a fallen world and she saw no hope of a happy ending for her story. She became faithlessly cynical. And what I mean by that is she had stopped believing that things could turn out for good. Faithlessly cynical. And if we're not careful, brothers and sisters... Um, As we live in the same fallen world that Naomi lived in, we too can find ourselves in the same cynical place. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Can I get an amen on that one? We can find ourselves in that same cynical place. We we hit those those seasons of trials, right? Maybe they're days, maybe they're weeks, maybe they're years. And we start to allow them, those trials, to shape our outlook on our story. We start to let them shape our outlook on our story. Maybe you've gone through, or maybe you're going through a jobless season when all the bills just keep piling up. Or maybe it's a difficult marriage and all you seem to do is fight and argue and the conflicts just keep piling up. Or maybe it's barrenness, years of trying to have a child, but every month it's the same negative news. Or maybe for you it's something else, I don't know. But whatever the reminder of this world's fallenness is for you, there is a danger in letting those things shape your view of your story. There is a danger in letting those things shape your view of your story. Just like Naomi, the trials of this fallen world can lead us to that place of faithless cynicism, a place where we let the reality of our trials shape our outlook on our story. But then along comes a story like here in the book of Ruth. And with its glorious, happy, and mark this, true ending, these things really happened. 
But with this glorious happy ending, it, it reaches out to rescue us from our cynicism. It proclaims to us that the trials, the losses, the struggles aren't what ultimately defines the story. What ultimately defines the story is the hand of a gracious and good and faithful God who is working out his redeeming love. Who is working out his redeeming love. You see, the book of Ruth, and I love this about the book of Ruth, it declares to us with a bullhorn, it shouts it from the rooftops. It declares that God's redeeming love, not this world's fallenness, is what sets the outcome of the story. God's redeeming love, not this world's fallenness, is what sets the outcome of the story. What you see in your life right now, that absence of shalom, that's not the end of your story, nor the goal of it. Can you believe God for that this morning? That's not the end of your story, and that's not the goal of it. And the end of this story, the end of this story of Ruth and Naomi and this family of Elimelech, teaches us this truth so powerfully. God's redeeming love, not this world's fallenness, is what sets the outcome of the story. So let's look now at how the fullness of that redeeming love is on display in the end of this story. Here in the final verses of the book of Ruth, we come to the epilogue of this story. All of the book's main acts, all four of them, have played out. They've all unfolded. We've watched Naomi and Ruth on the road to Bethlehem. That was act one. We've seen Boaz and Ruth meet in the fields. That was act two. We listened in on that midnight proposal at the threshing floor. That was a pretty intense act. That was act three. And we've witnessed Boaz at the city gate, winning his right to marry Ruth and redeem her family. That was act four. So so all of the drama of this story has now played out, and the author is now giving us the happy concluding report. And this epilogue starts by showing us the happy ending for Ruth, the full redemption of Ruth. Look again at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. This epilogue here begins with Ruth embracing a child who came about through her being embraced by her husband. Now remember, how did Ruth begin this story? Ruth began the story as what? As a childless widow. Remember that? She'd been married, and, and for how many years had she been trying to have a child? Ten years, a decade, and month after month, year after year, it had been the same disheartening news. Nope, not pregnant again. Some of you have walked through that for months or years. She walked through it for a decade. And then after all of those years of emptiness and disappointment, She found herself facing an even greater trial. She lost her husband. After 10 years of childlessness, she lost her husband. She had to watch her husband, Malon, die. That's where Ruth was at the beginning of this book. But look at her now. Look at her now. Here she is. Her empty arms are full. Her empty arms are full. They are full of a husband in his embrace. We we see now the marriage that we've been pulling for since chapter 2, Right? Those of you who have been here through the study, and we we felt a little threat there in chapter 3. She's going to go propose marriage to Boaz. How's all that going to come about? But Boaz responded, well, then he mentioned this other redeemer. So we went into chapter 4, and there was all that tension. Will she marry Boaz? We see it here. It happened. This marriage we've been pulling for. And, 
And Ruth couldn't have found a more ideal husband, amen, than Boaz. He's a godly man. He's a man of both integrity and humility. He's loving and he is kind and he's more than able to provide for Ruth and for her family. Boaz is a wealthy man and Ruth will know no lack in his house. In his house, Ruth will find the answer to Naomi's prayer. Remember that prayer that she prayed for Ruth and Orpah back in chapter 1. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. And what Naomi was saying is, go ahead and turn around and go back to Moab. Go find another husband so you'll find rest in his house. Because at that moment, Naomi couldn't see how there was any way possible for Ruth and Orpah to find that rest in a husband's house in Israel. Couldn't see any hope of that happening in Bethlehem. Couldn't see any hope of that happening if they stuck it out with Naomi. But Ruth did. And here she is. Here she is. Ruth has found rest in the house of Boaz. She has found security and blessing and peace. She has her arms full of a husband in his embrace. And that leads to her arms being filled with a child. Again, think about that. How many years had she known barrenness with Malon? Ten years. And I was thinking about that this week. I was thinking, I wonder if Ruth talked to Boaz about that in those days leading up to the wedding or in those weeks that followed. I wonder if they had conversations about that. I wonder if Ruth said to Boaz something like this, Boaz, I love you. And I'm praying, I'm praying that we have a child together. But I got to tell you, in my previous marriage, we tried. We tried for 10 years. But nothing. But look at this text. What do we see here in this text? What's there? What's there that wasn't there for 10 years before? Have I lost you? What's there? A baby, right? A baby. Look at this text and you see this baby and realize that those 10 years, those 10 years of childlessness, those 10 years of monthly disappointment, month after month after month, didn't define the outcome of the story. Amen? They didn't define the outcome of the story. Who defined the outcome of the story? Look at the text. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her. And then what does it say? And the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. The author makes it very clear here. That over and above all the human elements of marital intimacy, God was working. God was working. He was the one who determined the outcome. He was the one who gave conception. Ultimately, this story and all the blessings that flow out of it came from his hand. All the blessings came from his hand. And the author, he wants to make sure that we don't miss this. Now, although we've talked in this study several times about the sovereignty of God, and we've seen it uh, brought out several times in this story The author of Ruth only explicitly states God's involvement, his sovereign hand reaching out to impact the events of the story. He only states it explicitly twice in this book. As a narrator, he only states twice God's sovereign involvement. The first time was back in chapter 1. first time was back in chapter 1. In the book's opening act, the first act, the author told us that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Remember, there had been a famine in Israel. And how long had the famine been going on? At least 10 years, right? Elimelech left. 10 years later, they come back. So at least 10 years of famine. But after those 10 years, after all of that barrenness, after all of those years of lack and want, 
The author says that God reached out to his people. In his sovereign grace, he blessed their barren land with an abundant harvest. You see, it wasn't the reality of the fallen world, the difficulties of famine, that ultimately determined the story, the outcome of the story. What ultimately determined the outcome of the story? God. And at that point in the story, in chapter 1, the author made it clear. The Lord visited his people and gave them food. And he's making it clear again right here. Again, we see God's sovereign grace blessing his people. But this time it isn't a barren field that receives this blessing. What is it? A barren womb. And again, it's a reminder that the realities of this fallen world, a barren womb, doesn't determine the outcome of the story. Amen? Praise God for that. Amen? That doesn't determine the outcome of the story. The the realities of this fallen world do not determine the outcome of the story. God determines the outcome. Imagine the joy. And again, I want you to think about this. I mean, again, I say this all the time. Say it this week. Probably say it next week. These things really happen. Imagine the joy in Ruth's heart when she realized she was late. Imagine her laughter when she felt those first flutters of that baby inside of her. Imagine the tears of praise mixed with tears of pain as she delivered that baby boy into the world. And all of that came into Ruth's life because God's sovereign grace, his redeeming love, was ultimately what was guiding story. That's ultimately what was guiding her story. Again, God's redeeming love, not this world's fallenness is what sets the outcome of the story. It's what sets the outcome of the story. And that baby boy in Ruth's arms wasn't just a blessing to her. It wasn't just a joy to Boaz. As the author shows us next, the child, this child, this son, plays a powerful role in redeeming the life of the book's main character, Naomi. Remember, I've said this multiple times. Although the title of the book is Ruth, who is the main character in the story? It's Naomi. This is the story of Naomi's redemption. And, and we see this child playing a key role in Naomi's redemption. Look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. And notice the women of Bethlehem are back. Remember there in the end of chapter 1, Naomi returned to Bethlehem and she was greeted by this chorus of women. Well, we see those women again. But this time, instead of simply welcoming Naomi back to town, they are proclaiming the great story of Naomi's redemption. Look at their proclamation, verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Here, instead of the author explicitly stating God's sovereign involvement like he did there in verse 13 with Ruth, it's the women of Bethlehem who state it. And they praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, because he didn't abandon Naomi. That's what Naomi felt. Remember that back in chapter 1? She felt like God had abandoned her. That was her first interaction with these ladies. She said, I went away full, but God did what? He brought me back empty. He's taken his stand against me. He's brought calamity into my life. She accused God of being a no-good sovereign. It was only against her. But here these women praise God because he is a good sovereign. He is a sovereign who has wonderfully provided Naomi with a redeemer. Here's an important question. Who is this redeemer that they're praising? In this story, 
Boaz has played the role of redeemer. He's the one that's been identified as this family's Goel, their kinsman redeemer. And we've watched him win that role in that court case that opened chapter 4. So is that who the women are talking about here? Are they praising God for bringing Boaz into Naomi's life? Alan's with me here. No, they're not. Really look at what they say. And follow the pronouns here. Look at the text. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name, the Redeemer's name, be renowned in Israel. He, this Redeemer, shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. To who? Yeah, to Naomi's Redeemer. Ruth has given birth to the Redeemer that these women are rejoicing in. And Ruth didn't give birth to Boaz. You see, these women are talking about this child of Ruth and Boaz, a child that these women say is a goel, a redeemer for Naomi. But how will he, this child, redeem her? Will he buy back her land like Boaz did? Will he rescue her out of her poverty like Ruth and Boaz have done? No, look at what the women say. What do they say? He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. In other words, he is going to bring life and health, joy and vitality back to you, Naomi, in your old age. Remember, Naomi has been emptied, right? She's been emptied. She lost her husband, lost her sons, and all of those losses had brought her to a place of hopelessness. She looked at her life and her family, and what did she see? No future here. No future. Remember, in chapter 1, she told her daughters-in-law, leave me. Get away from me because there's no hope for you here with this family. She spoke out of her bitterness and she said that God was against her and that this family would never again have a child, right? She said, if I were to have a husband tonight, right? There's no hope of this family having a child. She saw her trials and she thought that they defined her story. But now all that she thought was impossible is right there in front of her. In this little baby boy. And by his presence in her life. His presence as her grandson. And also his presence as the heir that Boaz promised to raise up for Elimelech. And provide a future for the family. Through all of that. Through his presence in in her life. Naomi's life was changing. She'd been restored. Her broken and weary heart was being filled again by the joyful providences of God. In chapter 1 in that prologue we saw the dark providences right? Now we're seeing all the joyful providences of God. You see, God's redeeming love, not this world's fallenness, is what sets the outcome of the story. And God's redeeming love had been made visible for Naomi, not just through that grandchild, not through that, just through that baby boy, but also through the daughter-in-law who bore him. Look at verse 15. How do these women describe Ruth? How do they describe her? As your daughter-in-law who, what does it say? Who loves you and who is, who is better to you than what? Seven sons. Now you got to understand, in that culture especially, sons were everything. Sons were everything in that culture. Men were the primary providers. They were the protectors. They were the leaders. So having a son in that culture, that was seen as a huge blessing. But all these women together say that Ruth is far better than a son. She's better than how many sons? Seven sons. And in the scriptures... Seven is the number of fullness. It's a picture of fullness. This, this number wasn't randomly chosen 
by these ladies. They are saying that Ruth has been more of a blessing to Naomi than a family full of sons. And that's quite a statement, considering Ruth or Naomi has lost what? Two sons. She grieved two sons. But Ruth's love has proven better than seven sons. I mean, think about it. She stood by Naomi when nobody else would, right? Naomi was all alone, and she was trying to get rid of anybody else who was hanging out in her life. Orpah, Ruth, get out of here. And who stuck with her? Only Ruth. Only Ruth. Ruth put herself in harm's way. She went out to glean in the fields. Remember, we talked about this. She went out to glean in the fields. And as a foreigner, as a young woman, that was a dangerous thing to do. But she put herself in harm's way in order to provide food for Naomi. She made that risky marriage proposal to Boaz. Again, remember, we talked about it. She put herself in a very vulnerable position. Here she is, this poor, destitute foreigner, going to make that marriage proposal in the middle of the night to this wealthy Jewish landowner. She put herself in that risky position, asking him not only to marry her, but to be her redeemer, to redeem her and her family, to care for her and Naomi. Every time in this book, Every time we've watched Ruth put Naomi's needs above her own, she has been a picture of what it really looks like to love another person. What it really looks like to love another person. Do you understand that, right? It means you put the other person's needs above your own. It's not about just some, some feeling that I have that I go in and out of. It's about making a decision to put the other person's needs above my own. And that's what we've seen in Ruth, we've seen a love for Naomi. And by God's sovereign working, he used Ruth's love and the, the child of her love to restore and redeem Naomi. That's what the women of Bethlehem are proclaiming. And then in verse 16, the author moves from their proclamation of redemption to a picture of it. Look at the text. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. She took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. We got to go over the other day and hang out with Rachel and Luke, whole little Ben. And there's something just amazing about holding a new baby. Amen? Amen. It's just precious, and that's what we're seeing here. And, and do you remember the language that the narrator used in, in that opening prologue when he described Naomi's loss of her sons? Back there in chapter 1, verse 5, he said, The woman was left without her sons. But remember I pointed out, he doesn't use the common Hebrew term for sons. Remember what word he used? He used the word for baby. The woman was left without her two babies. He uses the same word here. Then Naomi took the baby and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Naomi has a baby again. Naomi has a baby again. And she's been given this blessing, this privilege of caring for this baby by Ruth, the daughter-in-law who loves her. Naomi was chosen by Ruth and Boaz to become this child's nurse, his dry nurse, his caregiver. Naomi got to know again the joys, the blessings of raising a child. And for somebody who thought all those days were, were gone for good. I mean, again, remember chapter one. All those days are gone for good. What a joy this must have been. To Naomi. Imagine the tears of happiness as she watched that little baby grow and start to crawl and laugh. Come and run into her with a scraped up knee or needing to be tucked into bed. 
Imagine the joy that filled her heart to know that although at one point in the story, she could have never imagined having a child in her home again. By God's grace, there he was. And every time she saw him, that little boy must have been such a reminder to her that God's redeeming love, not this world's fallenness, is what sets the outcome of the story. God's redeeming love, not this world's fallenness, is what sets the outcome of the story. But as beautiful as all of that is, that picture of Naomi's redemption, there she is with this child, this redeemer on her knee. The story doesn't end here with Naomi's redemption. You see, this whole time, the author has been telling us a bigger story. He has been telling us, he's been writing the story of the redemption of a nation. And in verse 17, he drops that surprise ending on us. Look at what he says, verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of who? Of David. The author, really out of nowhere, he brings us into the family line of Israel's greatest king, King David. And he shows us that this child, this child that God brought into this world through this impossible situation, just so happened to be the grandfather of Israel's greatest king. You see, the author is teaching us that God was working. God was working through all of the difficulty, through all of the painful situations he was working to provide for his people. Remember how this book opened. What was the, the first line of the book? In the days when what? Remember? The judges ruled. In the days when there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In those dark days. When it seemed like the nation was falling apart. The author shows us that God was still working. God was still working. God was working out his sovereign grace. He was working out his redeeming love for his people. And through a devastated family. Through a broken and bitter woman named Naomi, through a foreigner, a Moabite woman named Ruth, and through a humble landowner named Boaz, God was working to provide a king. A king who would provide prosperity and peace and order for his people. I was thinking about that this week, and I imagine there were many in those dark days of the judges, and if you don't know what those times were like, go read the book of Judges. I'll tell you it's PG-13, or maybe closer to R-rated book, but it was a dark and difficult time. And I imagine there were many in those dark days, days of the judges who wondered if all hope was gone. I mean, look at our culture. Look at our society. I'm sure there were probably many people who said, God is done with us and with our nation. It's a mess. There's no hope here. Why even care anymore? There were probably many who judged the outcome of the story by the fallenness of the situation. And that judgment led them to a place of pessimism and cynicism. And it's happening now in our country as well, isn't it, brothers and sisters? We're tempted to look around and become pessimistic and cynical. Say, oh, God's done with us. There's no more hope. I'm sure there were many in the days of Judges that said that. But here with a few little lines, <laughs> they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The author makes clear the foolishness of such pessimism and cynicism. God was at work, amen? Even in the dark times, even in the difficult times, even when it looked like everything was falling apart and it was all a mess. 
God was at work for the good of his people. Then the author ends his book with a genealogy that traces out this great line. And this genealogy goes from Perez, who was the patriarch, really, of the the people there in Bethlehem, this hometown where this was set. And it goes from Perez to David, this great king. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, that genealogy is not the end of the story either. It is the end of the book of Ruth. (laughs) But through this line of King David came a far greater king. Through this line of Boaz and Obed came a far greater redeemer than either of them. You see, in the Gospel of Matthew, we find another genealogy. In that genealogy, we find the names of Boaz and Ruth and Obed and Jesse and King David. But David's name isn't the terminus point in that genealogy. It doesn't end with David. It keeps going. It goes through Solomon and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah. It mentions Eliakim and Zadok and Eliezer and a man named Jacob. And then it says this, And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. You see, this line of Boaz and Obed and Jesse and David led all the way to who? To Jesus Christ. So this isn't just the story of the redemption of Ruth. This isn't just the story of the redemption of Naomi or even the redemption of a nation. This story was part of a bigger story. The story. The story of the redemption of the world. And in every twist and in every turn in the unfolding drama of redemption, from from the fall in the garden to the bondage of Israel in in Egypt to the dark days of the judges to, to the exile of the nation and the regathering in of the people and the rebuilding of the temple and the preparation of the world for Jesus. Through all of it, through the whole story, through all of the dark moments and all the bright moments, Guess who's working? God is working. God is working through all of it. And beloved, God had a plan. And his plan was to redeem. His plan was to restore shalom. His plan was for his people to enjoy a happy ending. Eternal life in his presence where there is fullness of joy as we read this morning and pleasures forevermore. And here's the thing. It's not just a plan for three or four people. It's not just his plan for the nation of Israel. It's not just his plan for the apostles or the early church. It's his plan for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's his plan for everyone who calls upon Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer, and the son who brings us peace. And what this story shows us is that God's redeeming plan will be accomplished. It will be accomplished. The happy ending of Ruth is just a preview. Foreshadowing. It's just a preview of the glorious happy ending to come. So all that to say, beloved, don't lose sight of where this story, your story, is headed. Don't lose sight of it. Yes, we live in a fallen world full of trials and difficulties and pain. But this world is not the end of the story for those who embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. Amen? It's not the end of the story. It's just the fading night before the glorious dawn. Amen? The dawn of eternity. Because, because God's redeeming love, not this world's fallenness, is what sets the outcome of the story. So don't lose sight of that, brothers and sisters. Don't lose sight of where your story is headed. Because of Jesus... Because of our God's redeeming love, our story, your story, 
has a happy ending. Has a happy ending. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we know as we, we gather together and we look at these truths and we talk about these things, that in our flesh, in our fear, uh, there rises up in us a, a faithlessness, a, a cynicism. We doubt. Because we live in this fallen world. We've seen the trials and the pain, not just in the life of others, but in our own lives. So we need the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We need him to take the truths of your word, grab a hold of these hearts of ours, and remind us where the story's going. I pray for all who are gathered here today. May your Holy Spirit really grab a hold of their hearts and show them that it's your redeeming love that sets the outcome of the story. That you do have a good plan and a good purpose for them. And all of the twists and turns, all of the difficult moments are going somewhere and it's going towards a happy ending. As they embrace Jesus Christ, the end of their story is eternity and glory with you. And and the trials and the difficulties and the cares of this world aren't worthy to be compared to that glory that is to come. So encourage their hearts today. Really grab hold of their hearts. Help them to see that it's your redeeming love, not this world's fallenness, that sets the outcome of the story. These things we pray. In Jesus' name.